I love a good adventure story. In fact, I'll confess to owning and occasionally watching nearly all of the Indiana Jones movies. But when I get the chance to read about the real-life exploits of a hero of the faith, well, that's even better. William Christie was one of the early Alliance missionaries. As a 19-year-old Scottish immigrant to America with a trade as a bricklayer, he volunteered and after a year's training at the Missionary Training Institute, was sent in 1892 to the western part of China. Very quickly, he found a way to take the good news of Jesus into the forbidden kingdom of Tibet. His biography, which sadly is now out of print, reads like an Indiana Jones script, full of adventures with robbers and bandits, kidnappings, wars, rebellions, and natural disasters, and exploits in places that were, let's just say, exotic. He was an amazing linguist and a first-rate scholar, earning the admiring respect of the Buddhist monks whose culture and philosophy he understood like no Westerner before him ever had. Maybe it's enough just to know that his nickname was the Livingston of Tibet. His ministry lasted for 58 years. Over 40 of those in Tibet and China's Wild West. And without question, his story is one of the most remarkable that I've ever read. What was the secret of his effectiveness and of his staying power? What made this man so special? Once, Dr. Paul Rader, who was then the president of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, listened as this incredible man delivered a very brief and very simple devotional to a group of missionaries in the Chinese port city of Shanghai. Christie had read the passage in John 10 concerning Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And every time the Lord referred to himself, Christie emphasized the pronoun, I am the door, I am the Good Shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. When Christie came to verse 16, he read, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, and he laid the Bible aside. He looked around at the group and repeated with great feeling, Them also I must bring. He paused, then made a comment that burned into Raider's soul. Brethren, no man can be a missionary. Jesus is the only missionary. He can bring them. He says he must bring them. If he is abiding in his fullness in me, then I am carrying about China the great, the only missionary. Only as I carry him in his fullness is my life a missionary life. Deeply moved, Raider left the group. I slipped quietly from the room, he wrote, to the closet of prayer. I wanted him so much. The only missionary to live in me. I must have it so, for no man can be a missionary. This and only this is the answer to the question, what is our power? William Christie's secret was the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I want that kind of life. Not the adventures of wars and exotic places, but the reality of Christ living out his life in me. In the summer of 1986, I was about a month away from beginning my first church ministry. Uh, we were at a summer camp and my wife and I were attending the evening service. There was a pastor who was preaching on the filling of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the sermon, uh, I looked at my wife and I said, we have to go forward because we can't begin ministry without the filling of the Holy Spirit, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so we both went forward to the altar and we knelt there. And uh, before we knew it, this man had come up and asked if he could pray with us. He began to pray, uh, asking that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit. And he maybe prayed a minute, not much more than a minute. And then he announced, there, it's done. 
And I looked at him and I looked at my wife and I said, are you sure? I really believe there should be some evidence that a person had been filled with the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said he had never met a man or a woman who had been filled with the Holy Spirit and did not know it. Well, I didn't know it. I didn't feel it. Two days later, my wife and I ended up in in an argument and she looked at me and said, nothing happened to you. And I agreed and, of course, added, nothing happened to you either. And then we began to pray and ask God to fill us with His Holy Spirit. The Lord really used that because it created a hunger in us. It made us begin to search and desire, not for any particular gift or manifestation, but for more of God, for His empowering presence. Uh, Over the next few weeks and months, we uh, started ministry, and there were good things happening in our church. But I knew there had to be more. In fact, I was very tired as I felt like we were doing most of our ministry in our own strength. And so around Christmas time, I remember saying to my wife, if there's not some more, if there's not more power somewhere, we can't do this. We have to quit and go do something that doesn't require this amount of, of effort. One of my elders came to me in January and he showed me a brochure from a conference that was being held in California. And it was a conference on the present day work of the Holy Spirit. We decided that I would make this trip and attend this conference. At that conference, I saw people uh, loving God, worshiping, experiencing His presence in ways that, that I'd really never experienced myself. Through the week, I heard good biblical preaching. Uh, there was a strong emphasis on mission and empowerment for reaching the nations for the gospel of Christ. And I continued to grow in my hunger for God to do something new and fresh. There was a man who was also attending the conference and he was uh, a worker, a ministry worker at this church. And he kept coming up to me. He came up to me on the first night and he said, Son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, Yes, that's why I'm here. And he looked at me and said, You're not ready, and walked away. And he came to me the next day and said the same thing. Do you want to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, Yes, that's why I'm here. And again, he shook his head and said, you're not ready, and walked away. And so with my hunger, my frustration was also growing, but I kept pressing in. I I kept asking God to do everything he wanted to do. And so finally on Friday night, when they asked pastors to come forward who needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I think I ran to the front. And as I stood there, uh, who showed up but this man? And he looked at me and he said, son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And as I looked at him and prepared to say yes, What came out of my mouth was just cries, and I started to sob. And he looked at me and he said, Ah, son, you're ready. And he put his arms around me and prayed that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. And as I stood there, God met me in a powerful way. In Ephesians, it says that we're sealed by the love of his Spirit, and that's what it felt like God did in that moment. When I returned from that conference, there was a noticeable difference in my life, in my ministry, um, in my marriage. Uh, My wife noticed the difference, and she really liked it, because I loved her more. I loved the people that God had called me to serve more. Uh, There was power in my preaching. We saw people begin to get healed and saved and set free from sins that had kept them bound for years. What I learned in that experience and in other experiences as God has met me and filled me again and again is that without the empowering of God's Holy Spirit, this ministry that we're called to is impossible. As we come to this section of looking at Alliance Core Values, I have to tell you that this is one of the the great things that drew me to the Christian Missionary Alliance because um, 
I grew up in a denomination. I had trusted Christ. You've heard my testimony, most of you, at, at a younger age. I grew up in a denomination that was kind of like those Ephesian uh, disciples that had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. I, I knew there was a trinity. I'd been taught that. But uh, everyone I knew in my church referred to the Spirit as it, uh, following the King James neuter gender translations of the pronouns. And so, uh, you know, I kind of grew up hearing about it, like the force or the power, didn't know anything about him as a person. And uh, when the revival kind of broke out in 1970-71 that, that swept through uh, college campuses and high school students across the United States, God also touched my life, and I got to be hungry to find out if there was more uh, that was available to me as a Christian because the Christian life that I had known up until that point and the one that I had observed and quite honestly the Christian life that many people live across this country today is one of trying to, 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 to avoid sin, trying to please God, trying to keep the rules, trying to do the work, uh, creating programs and ministries and different kinds of things to hopefully accomplish the work of God, but there seems to be a lack of power both for godly living and for truly supernatural ministry, service that, that effectively changes the lives of people. And so I started a kind of a quest. I began to explore, is there something else? And uh, that was also about the time that the charismatic movement was uh, coming to uh, its heyday, and I uh, got very interested in what was going on. I started going to storefront churches and prayer meetings and different places that uh, were experiencing this new wave of Pentecostalism. And, and uh, you know, I followed a lot of the teaching and got involved as best I could to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I had a solid biblical background and I also was able to read the Scriptures and some of the things that I was observing didn't seem to square with what I saw the Bible clearly teaching. So I was struggling with that. Uh, you know, I found out that there is a supernatural world and there is a supernatural, powerful Holy Spirit who is available, but there's also uh, other supernatural powers. And I realized in some of the strange meetings that I went to that there was more at work there than the Holy Spirit. And so we ended up, uh, 1972, going to Tacoma Falls College with this still hunger in our souls that we could find the, the rich fullness of a life in Christ characterized by the, the full power of His Holy Spirit. And it was there that I was introduced to the writings of A.B. Simpson and of A.W. Tozer and of Andrew Murray. And, and, and I began to read these deeper life teachers and preachers. And I learned that the historic background of the movement of the Christian Missionary Alliance in the turn of the last century was a part of that deeper life or holiness movement. And yet, the Christian Missionary Alliance remained a little bit outside of that uh, new wave of Pentecostalism of that day, 1904, the Azusa Street Revival and, and uh, a, a sweeping wave of Pentecostalism. And then there was another movement uh, about... Um, uh, kind of like, I would guess I'd call it crisis sanctification and, and living a sinlessly perfect life. And that kind of gave uh, rise to the Nazarene movement. And 
the Christian and Missionary Alliance somehow managed to kind of wind the track down through all of that teaching that was going on and stay uh, true to the Scriptures in the, and yet in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I learned that part of that background came from A.B. Simpson, who was a true biblical scholar. He was a scholar in Hebrew and Greek, a Presbyterian pastor. But he found that in his life, he was running out of power and running out of strength and finding himself defeated. In fact, uh, his story is that when he would preach on Sunday as a relatively young man, it would so drain him that it would uh, he would have to go to bed until Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week. And uh, he barely had enough strength to prepare his next sermon, uh, and then he would have to go to bed and recover. His doctor told him that he needed to quit preaching and that he needed to get out of ministry because his constitution was not strong enough and it was probably going to kill him. And it was in that kind of desperation that A.B. Simpson discovered the outpouring and the powerful filling of the Holy Spirit and the truth of divine healing and health. And it was at a, a private meeting with God in the woods that he experienced the Lord Jesus Christ as his healer and as his sanctifier. And he came away from that experience a completely transformed man. The rest of his days, he was able to work 16-hour days, day after day after day, as he led the movement that we now call the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And it became one of the most powerful mission movements of that period of time of a 100 years ago. And what characterized his teaching, among other things, was the emphasis that it is not, uh, I am not the one who is doing the work. It is Christ in me, Christ living through me, the power of the Holy Spirit in my life that is enabling this work to be accomplished. I live in the strength of His life and of His power. And it was in that study that I began to, to get a hold of an understanding of what it really meant to be filled with the Spirit of God. It was kind of the... Uh, as we would say in those days, the teaching, the fullness without the foolishness. I wanted all of God and nothing else. And so I want to share with you this morning, just in brief, some of the biblical background for this core value that we have in the Christian Missionary Alliance, that, that our lives should be empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, it's kind of the biblical basis for this. One of the things that we discover as we read the story of that growing, developing church is that the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience that occurs after the conversion experience. In other words, coming to Christ, receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, and trusting Him as Lord and Savior is, is the beginning of our walk of faith and life in Him. But it is after that experience of the new birth that we come to the crisis moment of realizing that we also need to be filled and baptized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the things when we read and study the Scriptures that we have to do is make sure that we say no more but no less than what the Bible says. And we have to read it carefully. Um, in John chapter 20, and, and uh, you can look this up, uh, now or some later point, but because it's not in your notes, but John chapter 20 verse 19. This is the first day after the resurrection. 
This is that first day of the week. It's Sunday. And it's the day of the resurrection. The disciples have gathered in an upper room. They're still quite frightened about all the things that have happened. And they're worried about losing their own necks. And uh, the Bible says that they've met in this room. The doors are locked. The windows are closed. Uh, they're, they're concerned and fearful. And Jesus appears in the midst of them. In this passage, an interesting thing happens And some people have tried to say that this is John's version of Pentecost. There's simply no way you can do that. This is the first day after the resurrection. The time marker is clearly stated. And in that in that moment, what we find happening is Jesus stands in the midst of them. He says, peace be unto you. And he shows them his hands and his side so that they can see that he is not a ghost, he is not a, a, a figment of their imagination, but he is a real person who has nail holes in his hand and a spear hole in his side. And he says, look at me, I am the one that was crucified. And they recognize that it is Jesus, and they begin to worship as such. And in that passage, the scripture says, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, receive the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the tense of the verbs there is now, in this moment. And what we find happening is that Jesus is for the first time saying to His disciples, you can be born again and indwelt by the Spirit of God. No follower of God has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit since the day that He left the bodies of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All of the Old Testament saints throughout all of Old Testament history had the, the experience of having the presence of God with them. But Jesus said in that same passage we were referring to a, a moment ago about the Lord's Supper, in John chapter 14, Jesus makes this statement to His disciples. I am not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He is going to be uh, with you and in you like He's been in me. And He makes this specific statement. Up until now, He has been with you. He will be in you. Now, here are followers of Christ. Here are faithful disciples. If, If we were to ask the question under all the teaching of Scripture, if one of those... Uh, disciples had died at that moment, would they have gone to heaven? And the answer is yes. Just like Abraham, and just like Moses, and just like Joshua, and just like David, they would have gone to heaven. And yet Jesus says to them, you do not have the Holy Spirit in you. He's been with you. But He will be in you. And the reason that He could not be in them was because their temples had not been cleansed. They needed to be cleansed by the blood. They needed to have their temples purified again, just like the tabernacle in the wilderness, so that the Shekinah glory of God could come down upon them and indwell them. And so, He says to them, He has has been with you, but He will be in you. When He meets with them after the cross, on on the day of the resurrection, and meets them in the upper room, He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And there's no question in my mind that in that moment, 
those disciples were transformed. They were born again by the power of God, and the Holy Spirit came into their lives. They were Christians just like we become Christians. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we're born again, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. In that moment, He indwells us by His presence. This is not Pentecost. Jesus still says to them, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. The one that that He has said, I will pour my Holy Spirit out upon you. In other words, after the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they are still told, do not go out, do not try to evangelize, do not try to build the church, don't do anything until you've been endued with power from on high. And so those same disciples, along with another 111 or so, or 109, are meeting together in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And the Scripture says in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were together in one accord in one place in that upper room, waiting for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit came upon the group. There came a sound like a mighty rush, and tongues like fire rested on, on all of them. And they began to speak with other tongues, so that all the come from all the regions heard them speaking in their own language. And in that moment, those cowardly disciples that had run away at the time of the crucifixion and were hiding away during the, the interim and Peter had even said, I'm just going to go back to fishing. This whole thing has just gotten me discouraged. After he again, now stands up on the day of Pentecost and with the anointed power of the Holy Spirit begins to preach a message. And the Bible says that over 3,000 men were converted that assume that many of the wives and children as well, so that there were six, eight, ten thousand people. One outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, and that's when it all began. But if you go on from, you fast forward to Philip after the persecution began. Philip carries the gospel to Samaria, preaching there in Samaria, and you find uh, that story in the book of Acts as he of Jesus Christ in Samaria, and people are coming to trust in Jesus Christ. They're born again. But when the word gets back to the disciples in Jerusalem that the, the revival has broken out in Samaria, John are sent. And they go there for one specific reason. They want to lay their hands and pray for them that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit just like they were on the day of Pentecost. Dramatic moment. Because we're told that Simon the magician who is watching this happen says, Wow, this is power. I will give you money if you can give me this ability. And of course, Peter rebuked him soundly for his mercenary interest. He was just interested in the magical dynamic of it all, but not in, in the true holiness of God. And then we move on to Cornelius' household. So the gospel has now gone from Jerusalem to Samaria. And the Samaritans are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then Peter is sent to the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11. This is a Gentile family. And they've had a vision and they've been told to send for Peter. And Peter's had a vision and God says, go and follow them to this guy's house. And so he goes to the household of Cornelius. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon the group. 
But it's very interesting how Peter explains this when the disciples again back in Jerusalem say, hey, what are you doing over there in the Gentile house? I mean, it's bad enough that the Samaritans, you know, but you're in the Gentile home. What are you doing over there? And Peter begins to explain what happened and how God sent him to Cornelius' household. And as he explains that, he puts it this way. He said, after they received Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon them just like he did upon us. And he draws a distinction between their moment of faith in Christ and the time when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. The real telltale uh, sign, though, is when Paul goes to Ephesus. And we're told that story in, in Acts chapter 19. As Paul arrives in Ephesus and he finds there a group of very earnest uh, Bible students. They're studying the Scriptures and they're, they're interested in... And Paul assumes that they have heard the gospel somehow or another, but on the one hand, they seem to have spiritual hunger and appetite, and on the other hand, they seem to be missing something. And Paul asks them a very significant question. And I'll tell you the truth, being raised as I was in the denomination I was and told that the, the new birth experience was it, and there was nothing after that, and there's nothing more to do, and that you've got all you're going to get, and that's the end of the story, Paul's question bothered me, because what he asked those disciples in Ephesus was this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a very interesting question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's no question that they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but that was not the question Paul wanted to know. Paul wanted to know, did they have that outpouring, transformational power of the Holy Spirit come upon them that translated them into practically supernatural Christians? And their answer was, we didn't even have, no, there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul says, well, let me explain this to you. He says, how were you baptized then? Now, don't get lost in the fact that they had not truly become Christians there was clearly a lack in their life, but catch the question Paul asked. And then follow the narrative as he explains to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says very plainly, they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then Paul laid his hands on them that they might be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What I discovered many years ago and what many others have discovered, in fact, uh, a gentleman who used to be past president of uh, Wheaton College wrote a book called They Found the Secret. And in that book, he tells the story of men and women, not just Pentecostal, but men and women throughout uh, recent church history, the last few hundred years, that came to a crisis moment in their life. They came to to a place where they loved the Lord, they had been born again, they had trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they were laboring in their own strength and their own power, and they were finding that sin was gaining the upper hand. And, and as much as they loved God, they couldn't seem to have victory in their life, and their work seemed to be relatively ineffective. And they came to a crisis moment where they said, Oh God, you've got to do something. You've got to do something in my life. There's got to be a change or I can't go on. I can't live this way any longer. I need your power. 
And in that moment, they talk about an experience of being filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there are people's stories in that book like Billy Graham who had that kind of an experience and others along the way who came to that moment where they said, God, there has got to be more to this. And friends, I want to tell you this morning that there's Christians all across America that are trying to live their Christian life like that. They're trying to live. They've been born again. They've understood the gospel. They've trusted Jesus Christ. But they're still trying to live in the power of their own flesh to, to defeat sin. They're trying to do things for God instead of having God do things through them. They're finding that to be exhausting and draining. And they're finding that there's no supernatural power to be transformational in the lives of people. And as a consequence, they're, they're living defeated and frustrated Christian lives. And they're weary with well-doing because it's all exhausting. Some people say, well, wait a minute. Didn't we get everything that we would ever get in Jesus Christ when we became saved? I shared the illustration this morning at 8 o'clock. It meant a lot to some of the people as they envisioned this. Friends, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and, and you come into the family of God and the Holy Spirit comes to, to live inside of you, to indwell you, you receive everything in that moment that you will ever have because you get all of Jesus. But Jesus is like a treasure chest, full of the riches of the glories of heaven, all the riches of the kingdom. And many people receive that treasure chest and they clutch it to themselves and never bother to open it up and see what it is that it contains. And inside of that treasure chest are riches sufficient for all of life and one of the most priceless gifts that's contained in Jesus Christ is the capacity to be empowered and filled by His Holy Spirit. It's not something in addition to Jesus. It's not something after Jesus. It's something in Jesus Christ that you need to open the box and, and embrace that particular jewel that has been offered as a free gift. In fact, Jesus put it this way to His disciples, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What is the criteria to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I find in the book of Romans chapter 6, after Paul has laid down very clearly the message of salvation and forgiveness of sin, and that Jesus Christ through His blood, has cleansed us from our sins and washed them away, he begins to turn the corner and address that sin question, not just the deeds and acts of unrighteousness that we've committed, but the underlying principle that seems to hold us into bondage. And as he turns that corner and comes into Romans chapter 6 and moves toward verses 11, 12, and 13, he brings us to a crisis moment. And he says this, I urge you, therefore, brothers, I urge you, present your bodies to God and your members as instruments of righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Read the chapter and see what he's saying. And the word present there means like the altar. Don't continue presenting your, yourselves to sin. And your, your members, your eyes, your ears, your feet, your hands, your mouth, don't continue presenting it to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. 
The interesting thing about that is it is possible to be a born-again child of God and allow your body to still be controlled by sin. That's a possibility. And Paul is saying it's not necessary. Many people struggle with sin and they struggle with the temptation and they're fighting battles all the time and they're losing because they don't understand that there's something available for them to take over the task. And so Paul says, stop giving yourselves over to sin. You're children of God. You've been cleansed. Come to the altar. Present your body and its members as instruments to righteousness. Die on that altar. Give up your own will. Give up your own determination. Give up your own desires and direction and passions. Give them to God. Devote them to God. Lay them on the altar. And He will fill you and He will take over your body and take over your members and begin to live His life through you. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17, 18, and 19, in that passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. It's interesting that it is not an option, but it is a commandment. Every child of God is commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the only way to successfully experience life in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the context is fascinating. He compares it to drunkenness. He says, no longer be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord and being submissive one to another in the love of Christ. And he goes on to explain that Spirit-filled life. And he says, it's kind of like being drunk, but not like being drunk. And the point that he's making is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is like the influence of alcohol. When a person is under the influence of alcohol, they say really crazy things because alcohol is influencing their speech. They do crazy things. They're not able to walk straight. They probably are not able to drive competently. That's why when a person is arrested under the influence of alcohol, we say your driving was erratic. You're driving like a fool because you're under the influence of alcohol. It's, it's masking and controlling and directing your behavior. And Paul says like alcohol takes over the body and, and the mind and the thoughts and the mouth. Let the Holy Spirit take over. Let the Holy Spirit fill your life. Come under His influence. Come under His control. Let Him tell you what to say. Let Him tell you what to look at. Let Him tell you where to go. Let Him tell you how to walk. Let Him be in control. One of the things that's often confusing is, is there a difference between the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? A lot of people get all excited about that and to try to sort it out. And I'll tell you very honestly, sometimes the terms are used interchangeably in Scripture. They're a little difficult to sort out. But I think they are looking at the same event with a little different focus. You notice on the day of Pentecost that two things happened to them. As the rushing mighty wind of God came in upon that group and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they, there were tongues like fire resting on their head representing the holiness of God. 
but they were also empowered for amazing service as they stood in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message, supernaturally capable of speaking in languages of all the people that were represented there. The way I try to think of it is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is for my internal life. It's for my walk with God. It's to give me victory over sin. It's to help me deal with temptation that the Holy Spirit possesses my life so as to control and guide and direct. But He also covers me and floods me with His anointing and with His power, enabling me to to do the works of God in His power, the work that God has ordained in His power. That's why Jesus said, don't go try to start the church without the power of the Spirit. You're going to fail. You're going to wear yourselves out. He didn't say those things, but it was implicit in the instruction. Don't do anything until you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, till you've been immersed, till you've been filled and covered and overwhelmed with His presence. And so, friends, this morning, there is available to us every child of God who has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have in that treasure chest of Jesus, you have the capacity to allow His Holy Spirit to take over your life, to influence your whole being, to empower you for godly living, and to anoint you for powerful service. He will do amazing things through you. He will speak through you. He will direct you. He will take you places that you don't even know He's taking you until you find yourself in a situation where God is at work and you say, wow, that is just amazing. Sometimes He moves and works in powerful ways like the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls are converted. He'll be at work here this afternoon in the backpack bash. Words will be spoken. Things will be done by Spirit-filled people that will have an eternal impact in the lives of others. Somebody was touched a couple of years ago or more and still remembered to drop off supplies this morning. Are they born again yet? Did God make an impact in their life? Friends, God wants to do things through us. And He wants to enable us to live for Him in a way that is not wearying and draining and exhausting with defeat. And that deeper life message is the power and the fullness of His Holy Spirit. As I listen to the testimony of Ron Walburn and watch the story of the missionary in China, previewing that video for this message. The story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples came to mind. You know, when he comes to Peter, Peter's a man of extremes. You know, first of all, Peter says, You're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. So now he's on the, okay, I wash my whole body. And Jesus says, Peter, your whole body doesn't need to be washed, but your feet need to be washed. 
And the other passage that came to my mind was, do you remember after uh, Peter was jailed, the church, Pentecost had been a while back, and the church was kind of uh, experiencing persecution and difficulty, and, and they, they were really starting to lose their focus. If you, if you analyze it, they were becoming intimidated by the threats of the Jewish leadership, and and so Peter's in jail, and, and they're gathered in a prayer meeting, and they're praying for God to do something. But you can tell by the context, they really are not sure it's going to happen. And, and Peter all of a sudden shows up at the door. Rhoda's so shocked, she doesn't even open the door. She just runs back inside and says, Peter's here! Now it's his ghost. No, it's Peter! And they go out and let him in, and he comes in, and he tells the story how an angel of God came into the prison and led him out and delivered him in response to their praying. And the scripture says they were suddenly emboldened. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled the place again. And they were emboldened and empowered to speak the message of Jesus Christ with boldness. And here's how those things spoke to me. Maybe you've had that crisis moment. Maybe you really know what it's like to be spirit-filled. But life still happens. You walk the streets and roads of your life and your feet get dusty. You're, you're clean. You've been saved and born again and, and, and even allowed the Holy Spirit in some crisis in your life to take over. But now you find yourself with dirty feet and diminishing passion and you realize I need to be filled again I'm glad to know that in the scripture it is possible to be filled more than once and sometimes when we leak we need to be topped off that's why Paul said to the Ephesians in the verb tense he used was be being filled don't run out. It comes through continual yielding. And my question is, do you need to be renewed today? Do you need to come back and bow before the throne and say, Lord, I've taken bits and pieces back off the altar and I need to let go again. I need to let you fill me. I want to live and move in the fullness of your spirit. I need a fresh outpouring. Whether you have realized this morning for the very first time that you've never opened the chest and taken out the treasure of the fullness of the spirit, or whether you're realizing as you sit here that you need a fresh anointing, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? Go back to the altar. Let Jesus wash your feet and fill you up again. That's His desire. And He's pleased when you're desperate. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name that You would move upon us 
that we would recognize again that we don't have to live this life for you in our own strength, but you have provided your Holy Spirit to live through us by your power. And I pray this morning that we would avail ourselves of that wonderful gift, the promise of the Father. Lord, fill us with your Spirit. And for everyone in this room, wherever they are, speak to their hearts right now and draw them to that place where they are willing to be possessed by you, controlled by you, filled and empowered by you. We can't do the work without you, Lord. Our most sincere efforts are futile without you. We don't want to just pull off great programs. We want Jesus to come, the great missionary, and bring others into his kingdom. We surrender to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.